Well, this morning, as we come back together, I wanted to talk to you about the final piece of the armor of God. But before I do, let us consider just a biblical illustration out of the Old Testament. And when you think about the Old Testament, you think often about one of the most beloved characters of the entire Old Testament, one of the most beloved individuals. And for the nation of Israel, that would be the prophet Moses. You see, for the nation of Israel, Moses would be the first prophet that they would have access to. He was the one who not only grew up in Egypt, but would be sent back to Egypt to help deliver the Israelites from their bondage to Pharaoh and the rest of Egypt. And so they know Moses. Moses is a very beloved figure. And our kids know Moses, right? I mean, when we talk about children's stories, we know the story of the ten plagues in Egypt. We know about the parting of the Red Sea. We know about going into the wilderness to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. Even those who are unbelievers or those who have only received some exposure to the faith would know these stories. So Moses is obviously a very tall figure. He casts a very long shadow in the history of Israel. A good man before God and one who would be remembered for his role as a prophet in helping to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. In fact, the Old Testament law that the Jews were expected to abide by is often referred to as the law of Moses. That's how much he is beloved. And so you can imagine that for a person like Moses, one of the hardest and most intimidating responsibilities anyone can have is to be the person that has to replace Moses. You see, when they got to the promised land and they're about to cross over the promised land, God did not allow Moses to go with the Israelites. And instead, the man who would lead them into the promised land was a man by the name of Joshua. Joshua would be the man who has to lead the Israelites. He's the one that has to step into the position that Moses had filled. And so in any walk of life, it is always hard to come right after someone who has had so much success. And when God gave instructions to Joshua, the instructions were very specific. Certainly there was a call to strength and courage. He repeated over and over again to be strong and courageous. But in verse 7, he says only be strong and very courageous. And look at the secret to success for Joshua. He says, be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. So the success for Joshua wasn't going to be in his appearance. It wasn't going to be in his own wisdom. It wasn't going to be in his strength, in his speaking abilities. It wasn't going to be in any of that. It was going to be how much he meditated upon the law, how much he devoted himself to the law. In fact, verse 8 goes on to say, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. You know, for us, whatever we do in life, we would love the secret to success. We would love to know what is it that we have to do to ensure success. If we had the right kind of mentor or if we had the perfect manual, if we could read the memoirs of someone who has gone before us, 
someone who has seen wild success in doing the exact same thing that we were going to do, we would want to read that. And for Joshua, the secret to success was made very simple. You just need to meditate upon my word. You need to meditate upon my word so that you will be careful to do all that is written in it. And so this morning, as we come to the ninth part of this series on the armor of God, the reason why I wanted to highlight that little story from the Old Testament, that narrative of Joshua and the first commandments given from God to Joshua, is this. As we go to the ninth part of the armor of God, our focus is now on the sword of the Spirit. So we're looking at the second half of verse 17, and we're going to take a look at three vital truths as it relates to God's Word, because when we talk about the sword of the Spirit, we are talking about God's Word. Three vital truths of God's Word needed for you to wield it for spiritual warfare. Now, as always, we'll go back to verse 10 and just read, starting from verse 10, the overarching command in this spiritual warfare when Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And he says, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. And if I can just pause for a moment and just remind us just from those verses that we are indeed in spiritual warfare. We are in spiritual warfare every day. And it is not against flesh and blood. It is against the spirits. It is against the devil. It is against the evil forces in this world, not just Satan, but all the demonic realm. And this sword of the Spirit, it's amazing, each and every single week as I go to a different part of the armor of God, I can see just how vitally critical it is, and the sword of the Spirit is no exception. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, when I look at what's happening today in the churches in America today, when we look at the conflict that's happening in America and how it's dividing churches into very unbiblical positions. There are some who are holding firm to the truth. There are some who are taking very unbiblical positions that are adopting worldly ideologies, worldly ideas, worldly philosophies. And I would say that for today, the failure of those churches who have gone astray is that they have not and they do not teach how to wield the sword of the Spirit. They have not emphasized the truth of God's Word. And so as we continue in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, this is where we are introduced to the six elements of armor. Paul repeats the command, stand firm, therefore. And he says, having girded your loins with truth. And we started with the idea that truth is the foundation to everything that we do. For those of us, when we are saved, you are given a foundation of truth that will help protect you from the spirits of evil. And that foundation of truth came through the gospel. And then from there, we read about having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The whole reason why you needed Jesus Christ is because you have no righteousness of your own. You needed the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 15, we read, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. 
And this is to say that we are prepared by the gospel of peace. The gospel brought us peace. And that peace has prepared us for the battle. And in verse 16, we see the last three pieces in addition to all. You are to take up the shield of faith. Everything we are to do as Christians is to be by faith. We have faith in God. We have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We have faith in the future. We have faith in the outcome of all things. And it says this shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. But then from there in verse 17, we came to our last two pieces and take the helmet of salvation. And this is to remind you not only that you have been saved, but there is nothing you can do to lose your salvation. And also you have a hope in the future that Jesus Christ will return and that we are going to be in eternity with God. So no matter what happens in this world, we are reminded that our home is not here. It is in heaven with God. And so now we get to the last, the sixth, not the last, because we're going to talk about prayer next time, but we get to the sixth element of the armor of God, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so this brings us to the first section. That was just an introduction, but as we look at the first section, we are examining three vital truths of God's Word needed to wield it for spiritual warfare. And the first is that the Word is produced by the Spirit. The Word is produced by the Spirit. So we look again, and the main commandment in this little section is in verse 14, Stand firm, therefore. And then verse 17, we read, And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so as we think about that phrase, the sword of the Spirit, if you were a grammarian, if you were into the, um, the grammar of this sentence, we, we call this construction a genitive construction. And these genitive constructions, basically when you say something of something, you know, there's a relationship being communicated there. Let me give you an example. When I say a man of God has arrived, you hear the phrase man of God, and your mind probably automatically thinks, well, this is a representative of God, or this is someone who has been appointed or sent by God. If I say a man of Brawley has arrived, you're thinking differently. You're thinking this is a man from Brawley. This is a man from the area who, who lives in Brawley. Or if I say a man of war or a man of strength has arrived, now you're thinking, okay, this is a man who is characterized by war or strength. So when you see that construction, it means different things, and we tend to interpret it intuitively just based on context. But when we go to the Scriptures and we see these kinds of relationships, we want to think to ourselves, what does it mean, the sword of the Spirit? And before I even answer that, let me ask and answer this question. How does the sword, which is an offensive weapon, help us with defense? Because all these pieces of armor, this entire section, is about standing firm and protecting ourselves against the attacks of the evil one, as well as all the evil spirits, the demonic realm. And if we think about the sword, the sword we normally think about as an offensive weapon, not a defensive weapon. But for those of you who have served in the military, you understand that if you're called to protect something, you can't protect it without offensive weapons. And it's the same thing for a foot soldier. Even if a foot soldier is called to defend, he needs an offensive weapon in order to help defend. Without that offensive weapon, the one who's attacking you can just attack you relentlessly without any regard for their own safety. 
So for the foot soldier, for the Roman soldier, a sword is necessary even for defense to be able to counterattack to keep the opponent honest. And so we understand that the sword, though an offensive weapon, can still be used for defensive purposes. But when we think about the meaning of this phrase, sword of the spirit, I would tend to think that this is the sword that came from or belongs to the spirit. When we talk about the sword of the spirit, we are talking about a sword that originated or belongs to the spirit. And of course, by the spirit, we are talking about the Holy Spirit. And of course, we know from the phrase that the sword is equivalent to the word of God because the phrase, the verse says, and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And now if we were to take these three concepts, the spirit and the sword and the word of God, basically what this verse is talking about is the spirit produced the sword and this sword is the word of God. We'll take a look at some verses just to help reinforce this. In the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, and all this is just to point to the fact that all of Scripture, everything that we see in Scripture came by the Holy Spirit. This is the result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's in our hands. It's right before your eyes. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, Peter says this, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And when he's talking about the prophecy of Scripture, he's speaking generically about all the Old Testament. He's speaking generally about all the Old Testament. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, meaning that there were no prophets in the Old Testament that were coming up with their own ideas on what to write down. Everything that was written down for us in the Old Testament was given to us by God. We read in verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. It wasn't human will that led to the writing of Scripture, but rather it was men. So we understand that all the books of the Bible, all 66 books of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, every single book was written by men, but it was men moved by the Holy Spirit. And men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so the question is, did man write the Bible? Did the Holy Spirit write the Bible or did God write the Bible? And the answer is yes. But it's understanding how it all ties together. Men wrote the Bible, but by the power of the Holy Spirit spoken from God. And in fact, uh, when we take a look at verses like Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22 is this long confrontation between Jesus and all the Jewish leaders. But in Matthew chapter 22, verse 41, Jesus has a question to ask the Pharisees after having been asked a number of questions himself. Verse 41, he says this, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. That was a very easy question, very easy answer. But in verse 43, he goes on to say, he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? And then he goes on to quote Psalm 110. Now, if you were to go to Psalm 110, Psalm 110 never mentions the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, referring to Psalm 110, a psalm that David wrote, he says, then how was it that David in the spirit could write this? And he got no argument back from the Jews because everyone understood that all the Old Testament 
was a result of the work of the Spirit moving through men. So another proof that what we have in the Bible came by the work of the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't just the Old Testament either, but also the New Testament. John chapter 14, one of the promises given from Jesus to his disciples was this. He talked about a helper that would come. And in various parts between chapters 14, 15, and 16, he gave more information about what this helper would do. Verse 25, he says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But, verse 26, But the Helper, who is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, what will he do? He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And with those words, Jesus commissioned the writing of the New Testament. The New Testament would be written by the apostles and by associates of those apostles. And that's how we receive the New Testament. So all of it was a work of the Holy Spirit. So we understand that the Word of God, the Word of God was produced to us by the Holy Spirit. The Word of God was produced to us by the Holy Spirit. We have the product of the Spirit right here in our hands. But it's not only produced by the Spirit, but for us to understand it, for us to make effective use of it, we also need to be illuminated by the Spirit. Illuminated by the Spirit. So section two is now that the Word is illumined by the Spirit. This is the second vital truth of God's Word needed for spiritual warfare. And so as I go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes this, and this just points to the fact that we need the Holy Spirit in order to understand God's Word. Chapter 2, verse 12 says this, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom. Notice that. We are not teaching you words that are taught to us by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, here's the contrast, a natural man, and this is describing everyone who does not know the Lord, everyone who has not been saved, everyone who has not received the Holy Spirit, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That's why when you are talking to non-believers about your faith, it often looks like foolishness to them. When you share the gospel, it often looks like foolishness to them. When you talk about your belief in what the Word of God says, they might mock you. They might call you backwards. They might call you uneducated or a simpleton or whatever it is that they might call you. But that's okay because we understand that those who do not know God do not accept the things of God. And this is good for our kids to understand this too, because as you get older, as you go to school, as you go to high school, you go to college, you get out into the world, you're going to find that you're going to meet a lot of people that reject what the Bible says. Expect it. Expect that the world will reject the wisdom of the Word. 
which is why even as we look around us, that's why we see every single year more and more efforts to try to push down, to suppress Christian values, Christian beliefs. Try to prevent us from being able to live out our faith and be able to abide by our convictions because they do not accept the wisdom that comes from the Bible. And even in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, we had looked at this many weeks ago, many months ago at this point, uh, but Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, Paul writes this, For this reason I too do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers. And here are the prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Paul's prayer for the believers in Ephesus was to receive spiritual wisdom and knowledge, and that can only be possible by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You can only receive that through the power of the Spirit. And even in verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The eyes of your heart enlightened. This is the idea, once again, of illumination. It is a work of the Spirit. And he goes on to talk about what it is he hopes you know. He wants you to know the hope of your calling. He wants you to know the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. And he wants you to know the power that is available to you, the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand. And so even in this prayer of Paul in chapter 1, Paul talks about the work of the Spirit in illuminating your hearts and minds to understand the Scriptures. But as we think about this illumination, because for us to wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, we not only have to understand that this is the work of the Spirit, we not only have to understand that we depend upon the Spirit, which means that we walk by the Spirit, we pray before we go to the Scriptures, something that I'll admit to you I don't do often enough, but we pray before we go to the Scriptures for understanding, for illumination. But we not only do that, but we want to make sure that we are not doing anything to quench the Spirit. We're not doing anything that causes us to grieve the Spirit within us. And even here in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 to 30, you may remember these words, Paul says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So let no unwholesome word come from your mouth, but bring words of grace. And this is talking about the speech that we have with one another within the church. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. And verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And I have in brackets the word and there in the New American Standard Translation, it's not there, but in the Greek it is there. So really in the Greek it shows that verse 30 is connected to verse 29, and it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does that mean? That means that if you engage in unwholesome speech, if you say things that are failing to edify your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you are grieving the Holy Spirit of God within you. In fact, I can even extend this, that if you are not walking according to the Word of God, if you are walking in sin, you are grieving the Holy Spirit within you. But not only that, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, Paul says this, 
Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Well, we've got to remember at that time, the New Testament had not been fully written. So there were prophets at that time. There were prophets that were bringing forth the word of God. But just like at any time, there are also false prophets as well. In fact, if you've been following along in the midweek Bible study as we've been going through the Old Testament, or even if you've been listening to the daily Bible reading, I've been reading through a lot of the prophets, but you see when you read those major prophets that there were a lot of false prophets in the midst of true prophets. So here he says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but look at verse 21, but examine everything carefully. Examine everything carefully. And this should remind us of the noble Bereans. Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. That's when Paul goes to this place called Berea. And he goes to witness the word to the Jews who are there. And the book of Acts tells us that those Jews were noble-minded. And why were they noble-minded? Because they received everything that Paul taught with great eagerness. And they were carefully examining the scriptures to see if whether Paul was telling the truth or not. Even the great apostle Paul was not held above the standard of God's word. And so we must be the same way. So do not quench the spirit, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. And that points to our need for discernment. To not despise when we hear the word of God being presented, but make sure we understand that it really is the word of God being presented. And today, this has also been a major failure for a lot of Christians, unfortunately. I will tell you right now that in this country, there are many false teachers, many false preachers. Many of them are seeking to tickle your ears, to make you feel good about yourself, and they are not giving you the straight truth of God's word. And I can say this because sometimes people hear that and say, well, are you saying then that the Word of God is just supposed to make us feel bad about ourselves? Well, yeah, if you're in sin, right? But if you love the Word of God, if you embrace the Word of God, and if you want to grow in the Word of God, there is nothing sweeter than to be taught the Word of God. And the more you grow in your knowledge of the Word of God, the more sweet it becomes, and the more sweet it becomes, the more you desire, and the more you grow in your walk as well. But we do want to be sure that you're not just treating this as just some sort of textbook that you just read through to be able to understand and that's it. So you're not reading the text without the help of the Spirit. So you're not saying that, okay, I don't care what the Spirit does within me, I'm just going to read this text. No. And at the same time, you don't ignore the text and say, well, I'm just being carried along by the Spirit. We need to devote ourselves to understanding the Bible while also making sure that we are constantly walking by the power of the Spirit, trusting the Spirit, seeking for the illumination of the Spirit to help us understand with greater clarity and with greater depth what the Word of God is saying to us. And it's a long process. Sometimes you read through the Scriptures and there are things that just pop out of you that you'd never seen before and suddenly you're enlightened about something that you didn't fully see before. And there are other times where we've got to struggle through this text. What does this mean? I, I don't understand this. How does this not contradict something else? We have those days as well. 
But beloved, we continue to devote ourselves to the scriptures and we do it as part of a community here at the church. You come together and we share with each other what we're learning from the word. We compare what it is we understand with what others are teaching and try to understand, okay, who is right? Who is true? Which one is more faithful to the scriptures? Sometimes our understanding is not perfect and we need that iron sharpening iron happening within the body of Christ. But that brings us to the last of the three sections. The Word is our weapon of warfare. And in fact, when Paul was really talking about the whole armor of God, probably he was thinking of Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, going back to the Old Testament, talks about what I call the warrior Messiah. We know Messiah is the Hebrew word for king, anointed one, the one that would come. And we know that that refers to the king, the Christ, Jesus himself. But Isaiah portrays this warrior, not just a Messiah, but one who is a warrior. And that's where he gets a lot of the elements of warfare. He borrows a lot of the concepts from Isaiah chapter 11. But take a look at this. At the start of the chapter, we see this. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. And we know David, that's in whose line Jesus Christ came from. So a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And then look at verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. In other words, this Messiah who's going to come, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And of course, if you know the Gospels, if you know the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, you know that one of the things that happened early in his ministry to actually start his ministry was the baptism. John the Baptist baptized him, and what did we see come out of heaven? Saw a dove. That was the Holy Spirit rest upon him. But look at how it affects him. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. So he tells us this is a spirit of wisdom and understanding. It's the same thing that Paul prays for you in Ephesians 1. And he goes on to say the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he's, his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. So in other words, he's not merely just going to trust his eyes and his ears. He's going to rely upon the perfect truth of God's word, upon the understanding and wisdom given to him. Verse 4, but with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And then look at this. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. So we see this correlation with his mouth and with his lips. Because we know Jesus Christ himself is God. The Messiah is God. So the words that come out of his mouth are the words of who? The words of God. And verse 5, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And this reminds us also of Revelation chapter 19, because as we think about this warrior Messiah, we have not seen the warrior Messiah yet. Because the first time Jesus Christ came, He came in order to die on the cross for our sins. The next time He comes, He's going to come as a warrior Messiah. He is going to come as a conqueror. You know, this is not the harmless baby in a manger, Jesus. This is Jesus the conqueror. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And look at verse 15, 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. The reason why that sword comes from his mouth is because the destruction will come from his words. But for us as Christians, because as we look at this warrior Messiah, this imagery certainly paints what Christ will be like when he comes the second time. But the question is for us, okay, well, how do we wield this sword? Because we are not the Messiah. We're not called to do what the Messiah is called to do. But as we remember in Ephesians, we're called to take a firm stance to defend ourselves against the attacks. And that does include the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let me take you to Ephesians chapter 4 and just use this to help remind you of the schemes of Satan. In fact, let me jump forward to verse 14 and then I'll come back to verse 11. Verse 14, we see, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Craftiness in deceitful scheming, that word scheming, it's a plan, it's a method, it's a certain set of strategies meant to try to throw you off course. And that's why in the start of the section on spiritual warfare, Paul talked about these schemes of Satan, so that you will be able to stand against these schemes of Satan. So verse 14 is talking about many of the schemes of Satan. He uses craftiness, he uses the trickery of men, he uses every wind of doctrine to try to throw you off course. And that is exactly what's happening today with so many believers. But as we go back, once again, we start in verse 11. Let's just review this in verse 11. And he, this is referring to Christ, he gave some, meaning some men, as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. This is a gift. These are gifts that Christ gave to the church. And if you remember, I talked about how apostles and prophets, they don't exist today. In fact, I just ran into one online last night. I do a lot of chatting with fellow pastors, and there was one man who entered and said that he is a prophet, and he has come to share with us that Paul, the apostle Paul, was a false apostle. And so that we should just reject all the words of Paul, and Paul's words conflict with the words of Jesus Christ, so we should just reject it all. And my response back was to quote the third chapter of 2 Peter. Because if you read through 2 Peter, at the end of 2 Peter, Peter actually refers to the writings of Paul. He refers to the writings of Paul and says that the writings of Paul, people twist and distort to their own destruction as they do the rest of Scripture. So Peter actually referred to Paul's writings the same way that he referred to the rest of Scripture. And then his response was to give me his own interpretation of that passage and why it's wrong. And then he adds, well, by the way, a lot of people don't think Peter wrote 2 Peter. And I said, wait a second. You just gave me an interpretation of a verse, of a book that you're saying is not even written by Peter? And he's like, well, I'm just saying that a lot of experts say that. I'm like, wait a second, you just said you're a prophet. If you're a prophet, what is it? Is it written by Peter or is it not? And he said, oh, I'm not going to talk to you. So he left at that point. But that's, unfortunately, there's a lot of people doing that today. 
And for us, we just need to trust in the Word. We need to trust the Bible that we have and recognize that this has come to us over time. This has been tested and tried and approved by generations and generations of faithful believers. And it is ultimately the sovereign power of God that has provided us what we have today. And so he gave some as apostles and prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. That's me. That's other people. That's Terry Norris. Right? That's Michael Reeves. That's a number of people here that will spend time teaching. So he gave some as pastors and teachers. Verse 12, why? For the equipping of the saints. And who are the saints? All of you. This is to equip. This is to prepare you. Prepare the saints for what? For the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, these gifts that Jesus Christ has given to the church is meant to build you up for the work of service to each other. But when we talk about pastors and teachers, guess how it is that we build you up? The Word. And verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That is a lot of words. If I were to summarize it, it's this way. In verse 13, it's saying, until we have reached full manhood, until we have reached full maturity in Christ. And then verse 14, as a result, now we're going back to the verse we just covered. See, as a result of all the equipping, as a result of all this teaching, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. That is exactly the way Satan is trying to attack the church, and he has been massively successful. And so this is the call for us of the church to be able to learn how to wield this sword. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, Paul gives us this example. Paul himself, as he is talking about the weapons of warfare, he really references the spiritual warfare here in chapter 10, verse 3. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Does that sound familiar? That's very much like the armor of God that we're reading through in Ephesians 6. So we do not war according to the flesh. Verse 4, but the, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is the idea that the weapons of war is really his understanding of the Word of God. And that everything that is brought up in opposition to the knowledge of God is being discerned and destroyed by Paul. And that is the way we ought to be as well. We need to discern what we are hearing. You know, sometimes the teachers that a lot of people like to listen to are very entertaining. They're very easy to listen to. They are very easy to understand, but they don't go very deep at all. They're just skimming the surface of what the Bible teaches. And when they skim the surface of what the Bible teaches, you're not strengthened the way you ought to be strengthened. And you're wide open to attack. In fact, I can look around at the churches who are failing, and I know that a lot of those churches that are failing have been receiving a lot of shallow doctrine, a lot of shallow teaching. And that's why I devote so much time and effort into the teaching of God's Word that I do. 
but let me give one final example. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. As we think of Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, even before we read this, let me just remind you that Jesus Christ, He's not only our Savior, but He is our example. Amen? We know that He is our example. I'll just read this to you in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the writer writes this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what this is pointing towards with that verse that I just read is that Jesus Christ, though He is up in heaven at the right hand, He can sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because He has been tempted in all ways and yet without sin. He understands the temptations that we go through. He understands the difficulty that we endure. And yet we know that He endured it. He endured every temptation. And when we think about the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, we often think about the cross, and rightly so. That is the height of His suffering when He went to the cross. And that suffering was not merely at the hands of men, but it was, it was the suffering, paying, and enduring the wrath of God from heaven upon Him. But there was suffering at the very start of His ministry as well. See, in fact, at the very end of Matthew chapter 3 is when he got baptized by John the Baptist. And the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and the voice from heaven is heard saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately, look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, let me stop there for just a moment. Because a lot of us, we just skim right over that and we miss the significance of this verse. Jesus was led up by who? By the Spirit. He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness for a very specific purpose. What was that purpose? To be tempted by the devil. Now, why is this? Well, this is really Jesus is the, sometimes referred to as the second Adam. The book of Romans will refer to Jesus as the second Adam. We had the first Adam, the man in the Garden of Eden. And we know the fall of man happened through him. But all the effects of the fall of man was reversed by Jesus Christ. But it started by being tempted by the devil. The devil was going to try his best to tempt Jesus Christ in a very similar way that he tempted Adam and Eve. But this would be even more difficult. Verse 1, so he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But verse 2, we read, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. So he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And then in verse 3, we read that the tempter came. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And with that statement from Satan, Satan was referencing a truth. Satan knew the truth of God. Satan knew the truth of Jesus Christ. Satan knew that if he indeed is the Son of God, then he has the power of God. And him being hungry after 40 days of fasting can easily feed himself. And so Satan just appeals to him just to rely upon his own powers. Go ahead, command these stones that they become bread. But you see, when we think about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was both 100% God and 100% man. He is both. 
How does that work? We don't fully know. But we know he is fully God and he is fully man. But we know that when he was here on earth, he endured temptations as a man. He never relied upon his divine powers to overcome the temptations that were given to him. Let me say that again. He never relied upon his own divine powers to overcome the temptations that were given to him. Why? Because he wants to be an example to us. We can endure temptation. And so here, as Jesus is being tempted by the tempter, by the devil himself, to command these stones to become bread, Jesus, in verse 4, he responds this way. You see, when he responds, he does not respond by using his divine power. He does not respond by calling angels to him. He does not respond by destroying Satan right there on the spot or by pushing him away. He does not rely upon any part of his own divine being, but rather he says this, he says, it is written. And when he says it is written, he is referring back to the word of God. What he is doing to withstand the temptation of Satan has nothing to do with his divine power and has everything to do with his knowledge of God's word. This should be a great encouragement to us. This should be a tremendous encouragement to us. Because Jesus Christ is showing us here that we can endure temptation without being God himself. But rather, we have access to the power of God by the power of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God. You know, and this is why so many people, when they hear me teach, and I've heard this before, but especially John MacArthur when I was at Grace Community Church, people will come to the church and say, you know, this is a wonderful church with very, very solid teaching, but I don't feel the Spirit here. I don't feel the Spirit here. And I'm thinking to myself, that's because you haven't read the Bible. Because the Bible is the work of the Spirit, and illumination comes by the power of the Spirit. And when you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5, or you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, look at either places, and it doesn't talk about supernatural utterances or, or prophetic gifts. What it talks about is the good fruit of the Spirit that results in our love for one another. The way we walk, our love for God. But it starts with understanding the Word of God. This is the work of the Spirit given to us. So we are given the Word by the Spirit, and we are illumined by the Spirit to understand this. This is spiritual ministry. And the result is our behavior. But look at, again, at verse 4. It is written. Jesus Christ said, it is written. And I love this verse. He says, man shall not live on bread alone. We understand that in this life we need bread. We need water. Just this past uh, Wednesday, I preached to the young kids at Awana. And I asked them, what are you thankful for? And all of them said, we're thankful for food and water. And rightfully, they should be thankful for that. Because we all understand from a young age that we need food and water to be able to survive. God understands that. He made us that way. But Jesus here says, he quotes the Old Testament. He says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The words of Scripture are just as important as the food that you eat. In fact, you can make an argument it is even more vital. But God will supply your physical needs, but we need our spiritual needs met, not by the philosophies of this world, not by psychology, not by motivational speakers, you know, not by pursuing what it is we enjoy doing in our flesh, 
not by hearing nice uh, music or, or hearing songs as much as that might have an effect on us, but our spiritual feeding comes from the Word of God. And so how do we equip the sword today? Let me just run through this. We equip it, obviously, by hearing. That's what you're doing today. You're here today. You're hearing the Word of God being proclaimed. And by the way, I think you already know the reason why we go through so many scriptures is because I want you to understand that what I share to you is what I am convinced the Bible is saying. And I want you to be able to go look at those scriptures and determine whether you agree or not. So it comes by hearing, but it also comes by reading, obviously. And we should be in the Word every day. We should be reading something from the Word every day, as much of a challenge as that might be. But in addition to reading, we should be studying. The two are not exactly the same. And not just studying, but memorizing. You know, Jesus Christ was an example to us, but He could only be an example to us because He knew those Scriptures. He knew those Scriptures. And we too should know Scriptures, and especially when we go into those times of testing. Because the example of Jesus Christ shows us that when we are being attacked by Satan, when we are being, we're being tempted to despair, when we are being tempted to not believe, we need to have the right Scriptures that can come to mind that we can counsel ourselves with. You have those verses memorized, you repeat them to yourselves, and you remind yourselves that these things are true. And that's how you resist the attacks of Satan. You also meditate. And Christian meditation is not the same thing as worldly meditation. Worldly meditation says empty your mind. Christian meditation says fill your mind, but fill your mind with the words and wisdom of God. Throughout the day when you're working, you can be just thinking about various verses, contemplating about how they apply, what they mean, and how they apply to your lives. And that brings us to application, because we are not merely people that read, but we are also people that look at our lives to figure out how to apply these things to our lives. We want to make sure our walk reflects our knowledge and our understanding. There is also discipling and sharing. So you can share what you have learned with fellow believers. Be an encouragement to them. Let them be an encouragement to you. Encourage each other with what you've read from the Scriptures. And disciple there are always people within the body of Christ that know less than you that could benefit from you sitting down with them and just sharing what you have learned from the Word. And on the flip side, being discipled as well. If you know you need to grow, look at someone within the body of Christ that you feel can help you grow, to meet with you, to disciple you. And of course, we also apply the Word of God by discerning. Discerning. We don't merely accept what people tell us is true, but we ask ourselves, does that fit what the Word of God says? And especially when you're listening to those who proclaim to be men of God, proclaim to be preachers or pastors, and especially those who claim to be prophets. Because when I run across a prophet, that's the first thing I'm listening to. What is their message? Because if their message is not consistent with the Scriptures, I can throw them out and say, you are a false prophet. See, a fellow pastor or a teacher might have a different understanding of a passage, and we can talk about that. But if you understand the Scriptures, the standard for a prophet was absolute perfection. And so if I hear someone claiming to be a prophet, well, you better be perfect according to what the Scriptures say. If I detect any inconsistencies, if I detect any contradictions, I know I can throw out your claim. And so far, 
that has been 100%. 100%. So the question for all of you, are you ready to wield the sword of the Spirit for battle? And if this is your first time here this morning, if you're online, if you have not put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, let me assure you that as we talk about the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, you have no ability to wield this Word. But you need to be able to wield this Word. You have no ability to be protected by the powers of the evil one. In fact, Ephesians 2 tells us that all of us, before coming to faith, we are walking after the course of this world, after the prince of the power of the air. See, what you need is the Lord Jesus Christ. What you need is to understand that you are a sinner before God. You have no ability to be able to prove yourself righteous before Him. The Bible tells us no one does good. No one seeks after God. And so the only way that you can be righteous before God is by putting your faith into His Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross. And He not only died on the cross, but He rose from the grave three days later in order to give us a promise of future resurrection. Even if we pass from this life, we have a promise that we will have resurrected bodies in the future. And He not only rose from the grave, but He ascended up into heaven, seated at the right hand of God, which tells us that He is reigning from heaven up above. He is reigning from heaven, and He is also interceding for us. He is praying for us. He is serving as our great high priest. But we know also that Jesus Christ will return. He will return. He will bring final judgment, and He will help usher in the eternal state, what we call heaven. And the only way that you can be a part of that, the only way that you can have a future with God the Father, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Acts 4.12 says, there is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. So your salvation starts now. It starts by repenting of your sins. Repenting, meaning turning away from your sins, turning towards God, and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, along with the rest of the church, you will be blessed to grow. You will be blessed with the Spirit, and you will have this opportunity to be able to wield the sword of the Spirit. And for the rest of you, let this be an encouragement. Let this be a reminder, an exhortation to not neglect the Word of God. This is exactly what God has given us to be able to withstand the attacks of the enemy. This is exactly what we need in order not to be thrown to and fro. This is the protection we need by all the ways that He is going to attack us. And so we want to glorify God by wielding that sword until we know a future time that Jesus Christ will return in person with His own sword to bring judgment. Let us pray.